0: Good morning, happy Monday. I have Neural Coffee in hand and it is perfect as usual. It is a beautiful Monday, the sun is starting to come up. It's still cold, I'm wearing a hoodie. I'm a little disappointed in that um, considering that it, it's, a, it's a big month. But um, let's go ahead and dive right into the Q&A because um, I got a, a, a question from Zhang, who is very, very prolific in the Q&A section. Um, but he's got a question about uh, female clients with, with narrow ISAs. He says, I, I know some of my female clients, mostly with narrow ISA, that a lot of them have an anterior pelvic orientation. Uh, one way I use to promote the posterior pelvic orientation is by using the heel ramp and cueing them to tuck. So he's talking about with a squatting activity, I believe. Um, but I see very little improvement. Uh, Is this a good strategy for a narrow ISA? Will it promote further inhalation bias, which defeats the purpose of creating the posterior orientation? Okay. So first thing we wanna do is we wanna deconstruct this and we wanna identify what we're really looking at to begin with. Let me grab the pelvis. It is way over here. Here we go. All right. So I'm gonna turn this around so you can see it from behind. So Zhang, what you're dealing with primarily is the, the fact that when you have this this narrowing of the ISA, you're gonna have a a posterior uh, compressive strategy near the apex of the sacrum, so the lower part of the sacrum um, right from the get-go. So this is the difference between the wides and the narrows is that the wide is gonna have this space open to start, the narrows are gonna have this space compressed. Then you're gonna see a later compensatory strategy where you're gonna get the posterior compression farther up, which is near the base of the sacrum, and then that's going to start to drive this anterior orientation. So here's the dealio with with some of your narrows. When you try to get a posterior orientation, um, especially with the heels elevated squat pattern, what you're going to see is you're going to see even more closure. They're going to actually compress this. And so these are your little butt squeezers. And so these are the people that I say that they're hiding a hundred dollar billion here, and you're never going to get it back. Okay. So Uh, It may not be the best cue, but you do have a strategy that that may work. So one of the things that you have to recognize about the posterior compressive strategy at at the uh, base of the sacrum is that this musculature picks up uh, IR... Uh, a moment, an internal rotation moment as it pushes the pelvis forward. So under these circumstances, if you want to use the heels elevated squat variation, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to put a band around their knees. Now, this is not the, the push the knees out into the band kind of a strategy. This is maintaining a parallel orientation of the femurs in line with the knees in line with the feet as they're squatting so what you're doing is you're holding position against the resistance of the band and what that does is it allows this musculature at the base of the sacrum to eccentrically orient now you're going to start to see the ability to counter-nutate uh, normally as you would see with an inhaled uh, bias uh, of the axial skeleton because what what your narrows with this this Uh, posterior compression have is they can't get the sacrum to move under those normal circumstances. So the band becomes very very useful under those circumstances. You have alternative strategies as well. So in some cases in some cases body weight is just too much load for some people to to manage. Um, Through these dynamic movements, and so you have to unweight them And so this is where we start to use alternative positions like quadruped uh, Prone inversion activities work really really well something as simple as as a child's pose in yoga can can be the solution here once you recapture enough hip extension, then move them to half kneeling progressions, and you'll see a, a, a pretty monster change at that point. But you've got to get them from from this this position where they've got this this anterior orientation first. And like I said, one of the easier strategies is just simply to add the the, the banded squat. Um, rather than just using the, the heels elevation as the only influence there. So hopefully, Zhang, that answers your question there. We have to do a quick Q&A because I got a bunch of mentorship calls today. Looking forward to, to this week. Um, if you have any questions, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. And I'll see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay, so I'm kind of excited about today's Q and A. The question is going to sound a lot like <laughs> a, a, lot, a a lot like the uh, questions I typically get, and um, but it's going to lead us somewhere that I've been wanting to go for a while because we're going to be able to talk about some programming stuff that that um, probably doesn't get discussed enough. Um, because we sort of get, have this uh, this why and how question that's that's going to come up, and so I'm going to dive right into it. Oh, by the way, I got some visual aids here, <clears throat> and then at one point in time, um, I'll probably ask you to take a screen capture because I had to draw a picture, and I'll I'll hold it up for the camera. I don't have my whiteboard here, obviously, because I'm at the home office, and and uh, but I'll give you a heads up on that. Question comes from Jimmy. And Jimmy says, I was wondering if you could go into a bit more detail about wide ISAs." So right away, it sounds like a typical question that I get. Um, that shows a sway back posture, posterior tilt. Where would you start with someone like this? So, so this is an, ex- an extreme case and it's going to give us a, a, uh, an opportunity to show how to move somebody out of this and recapture a lot of that, that full excursion of, of breathing and movement because this is really an extreme case. This is, this is somebody that is sort of at the end game of the superficial compensi- compensatory strategies that I talk about. And so let's create that representation first. So I'm gonna grab the pelvis, as I usually do. So if I have a wide ISA and I have limited excursion of breathing, that means that my ISA and my IPA are gonna match. So so I'm gonna have an exhaled position of, of the pelvis. So the IPA is, is going to be wide. Now. To get to the position that Jimmy's asking about, um, under most circumstances, your, your, your wide ISA, wide IPA is gonna have this mutated and So I'm gonna have this space posteriorly. So this allows me to be a good hinger, not a great squatter. And, and I can produce high levels of force. I use a lot of high pressure strategies. Um, and, and again, so I'm going to typically have this orientation. What Jimmy's describing though requires that I have this final compressive strategy where I'm actually gonna bend the sacrum down. So I'm gonna compress this area. And under most of these circumstances, I'm gonna lose both internal and external rotations. And so again, that's just layers of superficial compressive strategies on top of, of the, the normal archetype that's going to result in that. So I'm going to lose ERs and IRs. So I have very limited excursions available to me to use for activities uh, before I would hit a, another compensatory strategy. So if I was to take somebody with this with this posterior compression that, that jimmy's asking about they won't even have 90 degrees of hip flexion available to me unless they want to compensate so right away i've taken a number of exercises off the table so to speak um, because i can't move them into this into this position because they just don't have the capacity to do so but it while it is a limiting factor it also points my programming into a very very specific direction and so um I'm, I'm going to hold up my little graphic um, here that I, that I drew out for the, for the camera. I have two cameras, by the way, so um, I'm just going to hold it up there until I see it get visualized. So there it's clear in the little camera, and then it's there's the one for the big camera. So what I want you to do is to go ahead and take a screen capture of that. And, and again, so you have a representation. So you see the, the blue square in the middle is, is any direction that we want to go, but with limited excursion. And then you're going to see the red rectangle is where we're going to try to expand movement first and foremost. Okay. So when I have a wide ISA and I have this, this compressor strategy all the way up and down, for me to try to force a turn under those circumstances is very, very difficult to do. They have limited hip flexion, they have limited hip abduction, they have limited hip extension, and then all their traditional ERs and IR measurements are going to be limited. So I have to stay within this within this small square of movement. So instead of a split stance type of an activity, I'm going to use a staggered stance. So, so my feet would be just offset, um, and then I'm going to drive uh, a number of different reaching patterns or pressing patterns but i have to use angles that are below shoulder level so let me give you a for instance on this so we would have a staggered stance high to low cable press which would keep the pressing motion below shoulder level and i'm just offsetting the feet and so i'm going to gradually move into into these turns because again, if I try to go too far into a turn, all I'm going to do is create this massive orientation of the whole system, which is not really a turn. It's just, it's just changing what direction that I'm facing. And I want to create the ability to actually turn and rotate. So I got my water balloon. So another visual aid today. And so I have somebody that's that's compressed, anterior to posterior. So this is looking down on somebody, and so they're compressed. So if I try to turn them too far, all I do is get this. And that's not really a turn, that's just a reorientation of the the entire system. What I wanna try to do is I wanna try to create compression on one side, expansion on the other side. And if I can do that with my activities, that's going to actually start to restore my ability to create turns in these people and start to restore the rotations and so if you go back to the, to the red rectangle, um, those are going to be activities that where I'm gonna to start to deviate from center outward, to, so to the sides. So I'm gonna start with lateral stepping. So consider, if I was doing conditioning with somebody like this, um, we'd be doing um, sideways sled drags, or I'd be doing suitcase carries because what those activities do is they could create compression on one side, expansion on the other, compression on one side, expansion on the other. And this is how I'm going to start to improve the excursions and restore their ability to to turn. Because once again, if I try to force this, all I'm gonna do is get uh, compensatory strategies. So staggered stances, pressing and pulling below shoulder level, Lateral movements. So this is where your, your side lunges, your side split squats, your low step-ups come into play because that's what these people need because they only have a limited excursion in their peripheral joints. And so we have to take advantage of what they do have and then slowly progress them, them out of that. So, uh, Jimmy, this is, this is such a, a, a great question. Um, if you're in the rehab side of things, these are the people that you're going to want to put into sideline because um, we take advantage of gravity. So if I put you on your side and you're, and you're compressed A to P, what happens is, and you can see in my balloon, so I get, I get all the guts falling down towards the bottom. And so that creates expansion on one side and compression, compression on the other. So sideline becomes very important. I start to build people up from sideline. So now we're talking about immature oblique sits, mature oblique sits. Um, this would be something that you would progress eventually into side planks and such if we, if we're talking about moving into, to gym activities. So right away, you should start to be thinking about how you're going to be able to write this program for somebody like this. It's not difficult to write the program. What is difficult is identifying the representation of what you're looking at first and foremost. And then the program kind of just writes itself because when you understand the needs of this individual, um, again, it becomes very, very, very easy to write. So hopefully that gives you some guidance, Jimmy. If, if I didn't answer your question sufficiently, then, then please do so. Oh, by the way, the uh, asymmetrical ISA element of this, no different than anything else. You just have two different representations. So you, so you have a, a shape change on one side that is opposed to the other. You're going to follow the same rules that we just talked about. One side's gonna be able to go a little bit more anterior posterior. One side's gonna to have to go a little bit more side to side, but the rule still still applies. So again, hopefully that answers your question. Everybody have a great Tuesday. I'm gonna finish my coffee. Today's a big, big, big long walk. So I'm looking forward to that. Have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have Neurocoffee in hand and It is perfect. Mm, That's really good. Okay. I got a couple questions to work through, uh, today, um, today is Wednesday. That means tomorrow is Thursday. So tomorrow's chips and salsa day, but we also have the, uh, 6am coffee and coaches conference call on zoom. Um, anybody is welcome to attend that. Um, just remember to post your coffee prep up on Instagram, tag me so I can share it with the with the rest of the world and let them know that we're all getting together. Um, we've, we've had a, a series of great calls, great people coming on there. So it's been really fun. So I want to continue with that. And we'll try to continue with that as long as we as long as we can, even when things try to get back to, to normal, we're gonna to try to maintain that. So very cool. Um, now let's go to the QA. So I got a question from Greg and Greg says under what circumstances might you see a narrow isa presentation with significant limitations in dorsal rostral expansion would you consider it common for these findings to be restricted on one side and then he wants to know a little bit about intervention so let's let's talk about this let me bring in the uh the model here okay so dorsal rostral the space up here in the upper back so this is where you have a, a lot of expansion during a breath in. And so if this becomes restricted, you get an alteration of scapular position. If, and if I change the scapular position, I immediately create a constraint as to what motions will be available. And so when we talk about dorsal rostral, I'm gonna leave that here for a second. When we talk about dorsal rostral expansion, when we lose that, we lose our external rotations. Okay, and so, so if you've been following along, you know that, that all we have are ERs and IRs. We don't have all these other, other uh, imaginary planes to play in. And, and so we're going to have to monitor our external rotation. So it's not just the pure external rotation. So we're talking about horizontal abduction. We're talking about flexion. So when I lose dorsal rostral expansion, I'm going to lose my ERs. Um, under what circumstances with a narrow, now we're talking about a compensatory sequence. And so when we look at the sequence of events that that arises from people with uh, an axial skeleton that is biased towards inhalation with a compensatory exhalation strategy, so it's a narrow ISA, under those circumstances, the dorsal rostral compression happens a little bit later in the sequence. So a lot of times what you're going to see is you're going to see a loss of internal rotation in the shoulder first followed by the loss of external rotation. So in most cases, when you have a dorsal rostral compression in a narrow ISA individual, you're going to lose measures in both directions. So keep that in mind and that's how you're going to be able to distinguish um, rather easily um, whether you've got this dorsal rostral compression on on the narrow. So uh, as far as seeing it unilaterally, absolutely. So you're gonna see people with a number of strategies to manage all the internal and external forces. And so some of those people are going to be utilizing a much more asymmetrical strategy. So, So it's very, very common, in fact, to see Uh, a a more biased strategy on one side versus the other. And so dorsal rostral compression is just like any other compensatory strategy. If I need it, I'm going to use it. And so very often you'll see it at one side and the other. And then it's just a matter of, of using an asymmetrical activity when we're trying to restore movement options. So if I'm trying to restore expansion to the dorsal rostral area on one side, both sides of the body are not going to be doing the same thing. It doesn't mean that you couldn't use asymmetrical a activity and be successful. It just means that you're probably going to be more successful and more likely to recapture the movement options that you wanted if you're using a more uh, asymmetrical activity. Now, when we talk about those compensations, and then our, our strategies to, to intervene. Um, I've got a number of resources up there. So if you go to the YouTube channel, Greg, um, there's a bunch of stuff for, for dorsal rostral. There's a seated variation of dorsal rostral expansion, which I love to give to people that work at desks because they can they can intermix this activity with their, their regular desk activities all day long. Um, you'll see another one that uses a squat variation. Um, when we're talking about a better band pull apart, there's a, there's a video up on, on, I believe Instagram and, um, on, on the YouTubes, um, as far as that goes. So so those are really, really good strategies. The thing that you're going to want to do though, when we're talking about creating expansion, in this area is you're going to avoid that 90 degrees of shoulder flexion, um, position for the, for the shoulder and for the hip, at least initially. And the the reason I say initially because eventually you want to be able to utilize that position and create a yielding strategy in the dorsal rostral area because we do need the ability to, to expand and delay our ability to compress that area when we're talking about turning athletes, so baseball pitchers, tennis players, golfers. Um, they need to be able to compress that area to create their, their force output, but they also need yielding and, and, and overcoming strategies to be able to alternate to actually produce their turning. So, so this, is a great, this is a great question, Greg, um, but understand, let's back up a little bit and do a quickie review. Narrow ISAs, the dorsal rostral is gonna compress a little bit later. than if I was a, a wide ISA, um, I need to recapture that so I can recapture my external rotation measures. Um, It will present unilaterally, so I need to make sure that I can produce eccentric orientation of that area to create that full expansion. But then I'm going to have to superimpose a challenge to it to allow it to be concentrically oriented but yielding to produce rotation in high-speed, high-force rotational athletes. So, Greg, I hope that's helpful for you. Um, great question. Keep them coming. Um, happy Wednesday to everybody. Remember chips and salsa tomorrow and the, the, uh, coffee and coaches conference call in the morning at 6 AM. Um, I'll post the link on my, uh, Facebook page, um, right before the call tomorrow morning. So I'll see you guys tomorrow. All right. It is Thursday. It's chips and salsa day. I have neuro coffee in hand. Everybody. I hope you have your coffee, mine. is perfect.
1: Our gym is uh, like we have both boxing, street conditioning, a bunch of stuff. So we've actually dropped group passes for the most part and actually gone only one-on-one um, for space. And we have like a 10,000 square foot facility, so it's really big. It's just that if we have a lot of youth, and so we kind of dropped down to one-on-one at this point. And again, They actually want to be able to come in a lot more, but we're actually limiting that aspect right now. So And if people are wearing masks and cleaning, you know, probably extra, just staying on it um, more so than we usually do.
0: Just, just make people happy. Like we always have. Mm-hmm. Rules have not changed. The context is a little different. Yep. Right? So, so, you know, you're, you're providing a service. Provide the best possible service for your client. right? Mike, that's, that's have,
2: have you found that some of the base movements are a challenge for some of these kids? Like skipping, jumping, do you know what I mean? Like even just basic
1: yes. skills. So what I, what I essentially do is I create a PowerPoint presentation. They have videos and I do a screen share. And so I literally have the video demonstration and I'll coach and cue through it. And then it literally still takes kids probably like a good four or five sessions before they finally understand like, oh, this is what he's like trying to have me do. So I'm not sure if it's just a miscommunication on my part or it's just like an inability for them to understand like the visual to the, to the
2: motor. Well, and in many ways, you're, you're developing both skills from a physical perspective. If it is a motor planning thing to a comprehensive ability to be able to follow directions and be able to apply that to their skill set. Absolutely. Sure. Um, Hopefully,
0: yeah. You know, here's the interesting thing about all this stuff is is because of opportunities or the or the, the demands that have been placed upon everyone. Um, I don't know if you everybody else notices a bit. Do you notice that there's more people outside Like a lot so, so we live in this, this, um, condominium community, um, which is usually empty. Like you wouldn't know anyone else lived here. I rarely see another human being. And now, um, I gotta be re- like when I when I take my dog out, I gotta be really, really careful. Cause he's a little rambunctious, a little guy, you know, he gets excited around people. And, uh, um, so I got to be really, really careful now because there's always people outside. I, I've seen more kids on bikes in my neighborhood in in the last two months than ever. And we've been here eight years. And I just hope I hope this is one of those things that that continues. Um, just from a public health standpoint,
1: um, these are more just like clarification questions about wrist exam.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you like to use that opposition test? Apple. Yes. Yeah. Um, is that? Am I more likely to have um, an increase in ulnar deviation if I don't have full pronation?
0: Um, it's a big fat maybe. So that that's why you have to do, do the test because. It, the, so here's the confounding variable: is do I have an eccentrically oriented abductor pollicis longus? Because under those circumstances, so, so, the, so that muscle right there, right, if that is eccentrically oriented, what you'll get <clears throat> is the differential between the, the hand and the forearm, right? Um, and, and so uh, if I have to drive pronation harder, I will drive, uh, like the opponents will yeah, drive okay. myself harder this way, and, and so the forearm stops pronating, but the hand yep. can actually keep going, right? And so that's an eccentrically oriented abductor polypus longus. So what will happen is where well, you should not have ulnar deviation. So so when the forearm's pronated, I should not have ulnar deviation, okay? It should be blocked because what happens is as the, as the forearm pronates, the radius actually moves Relatively in that direction. So, so it appears to move proximally, which positions the wrist into radial deviation. So I should have a block to ulnar. I should have a block to extension. <clears throat> However, if I drive opponents hard enough to create even more pronation, um, the hand will twist relative to, to the forearm. Now, that is eccentrically oriented, and you do have ulnar deviation. And so now you know wh- what you need to uh, reorient. To, to recapture normal wrist uh, behaviors, right? Because if, if that stays eccentrically oriented, then I have all sorts of, of mobility where I shouldn't. You'll see a lot of um, lateral wrist pain during, during like uh, pronated activities. But if I try to drive extension, they load the medial or medial, the medial, the, uh, the radial side of the wrist. And so you get radial wrist pain on that side, like if I'm doing like a push-up or a press, they hurt right there, and that's how you know it's a twist. Um, when you don't have the eccentrically-oriented uh, abductor polypus longus, you get pain right over the lunate dead center. So, so you, you can actually kind of distinguish, do I have a twist in the hand, or is it just the, the, the pronation? that's the problem. And that's how you distinguish between the two.
1: We're really just talking about a pronated hind foot of the wrist.
0: That is correct, sir.
1: Cool. Thank you.
0: Yep. Yep. Yep.
2: And finger flexion can offset that, right? So they have to really hold their hand fairly straight. So yeah, yeah. so it's the the
0: boy scout, you do the boy scout sign, right? And then you on their DVA and then you release the, you release the opposition. So what should happen? So here's what should happen. So I, I ulnar deviate, I hit the barrier, right? And and so the barrier then becomes this, this abductor polygus longus tendon, okay? And then when I release it, it should go a little bit farther into ulnar deviation. That would be a normal. If I go all the way over and I release it and it stays in that position, you've gone past what would be the, the relative normal. And, and so you're already, um, so, so you have you have more space here, less space here to begin with, so it doesn't go any farther. And that's how you distinguish whether you've got that eccentric orientation in the thumb. Yeah, it, it's like that's been been money as far as exercise selection. So it's the intervention that's, that's obviously the most important thing. And so if I do have that eccentric orientation, did you see the video that I did uh, yesterday with the curl? So a lot There's of people not... miss the thumb, the thumb part, which was that's where that's where the key is. It's like, why do you scoot over on the dumbbell? And literally, you're pushing your thumb against the inside of the dumbbell, because people think that oh, you're just driving, you're just driving harder supination. Yes, but I'm also reorienting the hand relative to the wrist.
1: So when would it be? Uh advantageous for me to pull the trigger on trying to program something that's going to take a very long time to create that adaptation without any way of me knowing directly if that adaptation is actually necessary and is occurring as I think it's going to occur. Mm
0: -hmm. You don't. You can't, right? So if there's no way to measure it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't influence your decision making this is this is the part about being informed like when people talk about about energy production and they they want to talk about like the specifics of, of energy uh, the energy systems which is really cool to to understand it's like that's in the background of your understanding but when it comes to the application what you have to do is you have to program for the outcome so so that's where like a field test so something like a yo-yo test for, for a soccer player comes into play it's like we we equate performance in that test with some some adaptation that is favorable for performance. Right? And so sure. that's kind of what we rely on. It's, it's, so it's, it's just like us relying on, on movement as a representation of every system in the body, right? You, you have to say, okay, so if I, if I produce this adaptation that, that because of my understanding of the sciences, um, I should be able to acquire some of this adaptability, well, how would it be represented in performance? And then that's your field test. Right, so I would do like a six-minute run or the twelve-minute run for for aerobic capacity, or the Yo-Yo test, or even a vertical jump, or whatever. Right, we have to we have to use a representation, so we have to use a model that allows us to determine whether we are we are promoting the adaptations that that we're seeking. Right, so you have to have some representation of it.
1: Just because I, I understand, like with all of our, our table measurements. Those are multifactorial as well. But we can at least somewhat tease out, okay, based on this individual, based on their certain presentation, what may more likely be causing the presentation that we see. But just from an energy system standpoint, I at least don't have a model to um, accurately guide me towards which of all of these different variables that create uh, whatever performance thing I'm measuring which one is really the one that I need to be chasing so that, that's kind of
0: well, and, and you may never know at all which is again that's why we're going after outcome but see this is this is why the why understanding the science to to some degree is, is important is because it, it provides you the <clears throat> Excuse me. It provides you the theoretical foundation to make a decision from you say, well, okay, so I need to increase his endurance. So that implies that I'm going to be promoting some, some enzyme development mitochondria uh, construction, um, etc. Hang on one second. I have something very important to do. Okay. Um, morning, Lisa. Um, so so again, you have this theoretical foundation of understanding, and then it's like, okay, if I, if I was to do this, how would what what parameters would I would I want to impose um, to to promote this adaptation? And then you say, okay, so it's yo-yo test improved. So okay, I was right, right? Um, whether you're right or whether you're wrong, um, you got the the desired result. So so. We have the theoretical, we have the understanding that influences our capabilities of making a decision. Then we have the pure application of, of producing the outcome. Yeah.
2: This kind of brings to mind athletic development in general. That's not quite as straightforward as, Hey, I'm a power lifter. And I want to put 200 pounds on my squat. There's a lot more variables and it's hard to know if them training with you the last six months actually improved their performance.
0: That is correct, sir. Welcome to gray. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you just don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Has anybody ever written a twelve-week program that they didn't have to change at all?
2: What are What are some of the things you like? I guess test or look for to decide that. It's like the
0: activities that you choose in in, in your warm ups. Um, you know, when 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 we talk about just some of their movement capabilities, we can monitor that, and so. So as you get to know someone over time, this is really important too, is to observe over time. It's like you'll be able to see, like, okay, can so-and-so get into this position? Um, what, is their, what is their ground contact? So if you're doing some dynamic stuff as part of the warm-up, it's like you expect certain people to be able to bounce across the ground very, very well. Um, watch them when they walk in the door. So, so the, the two big ratings that that we'll use is rating of technique and then the rating of perceived exertion, right? How hard was that for you? And you do this all the time anyway. You, I mean, you know, it, I'm, I'm preaching the choir here, but it's like you monitor the technique of your client, right? And you go, oh, they're really not doing well today. Let's back it off a little bit. Or they're at, you know, 70% of, of their, their perceived maximum, and but they're telling you that it feels like it's a nine out of 10. It's like, okay, we're going to make an adjustment today, and we're going to make this feel like a 7 out of 10 like we intended.
2: Isn't there value as well in kind of like a subjectivity thing? Like you, you know, like you can even just ask them when they come in or have them fill out a little three-question form. What's your readiness level? What are you feeling? Absolutely. How'd you sleep last night? You know what I mean? Like just something I there. Yeah. three. And a lot of stuff that's been correlated, didn't, I haven't seen anything written in the literature, but I mean, having some colleagues who work at the really high levels who said like, you know, I, I, I use that and it correlates amazingly with GPS findings at the end of a session. So.
0: Um, but like I said, I don't, I don't know if there's like one resource. I've got, a, I've got like maybe three or four books that try to break it down. And, and there's a, a fair amount of agreement. And then there's some little things that are, that are like nuanced that might be associated with the stuff that we were talking about before when we were talking about the wrist. It's like some people will say that, no, you don't lose ulnar deviation and pronation because what they're seeing though is this relationship that we talked about before with the eccentrically oriented. So if if I see more of that, then that becomes my perspective, you know? It's It's like if you see a very specific patient population, your bias becomes very, very strong in certain directions because that's all you see. I think that that, that you, you be the good coach and you say, this is the position I want you to try to recapture, okay? If I can't get it all today, I will find a way to work towards that. So let me give you, for instance, so let's just say the guy can't go into half kneeling. Can you split his feet, you know, that distance? So now I can stagger him and I can do this and I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. So I can start to move things, right? Gradually, you don't have to go diving right into you know the the end position of an activity good morning happy friday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect okay it is friday very exciting yesterday so the the mexican restaurant was open we got to go in we got to sit down we got our favorite waitress I had, I had uh, chorizo queso, as I always do. It was fabulous, it was wonderful, it was good to feel semi-normal again. So hope you guys were doing well. Um, so I got two questions that, that came through on the q and I think that they're relatively short compared to what we might do for a really long question. So I'm hoping that that's the case. I don't know, we'll see, we'll play this out. But I'm going to try to do both questions. First one comes from Doman. So Doman and I were having a little conversation back and forth on askbillhartman at gmail.com and um, he had conceptualized one of the the half kneeling videos that that I had posted and figured it out and it was awesome and then he came back with the second question. And so he says um, he's what about people that are presenting with excessive straight leg raise like 120 degrees and have a have a limitation in IR but sufficient ER could it be that that person has an inhale pelvis with an anterior orientation which would still allow such a straight leg raise so you're you're absolutely on track with this but but I think that if we look at what the reality might be in regard to the the actual positions and orientations you'll see why you get the crazy straight leg raise and then we have to clarify what you mean by sufficient ER because you might not have as much as you think you do okay so if I'm talking about uh, narrow ISA, narrow IPA, I'm gonna have this kind of a, a, a presentation. And so under those circumstances, I'm gonna have a compressive strategy in this, in this lower posterior region. And I've got a couple of possibilities. So if I, if I would move forward under those circumstances with the inhaled pelvis, I'll have somebody that has like this 35, 45, maybe a 50 degree straight leg raise. If I have any anterior orientation, however, I'm gonna get a little bit more of of an eccentric orientation on some of this this lower posterior musculature because of the orientation that, that takes place. It's still biased towards ER. That's the thing we have to recognize. However, when you take somebody like this and you lay them on the table in an anterior orientation, they're actually laying in hip flexion right away. And so what you've done is you've taken the normal relationship of external rotation to internal rotation to external rotation, and you've tipped it forward. So they're actually able to internally rotate. It's just way down here where you're gonna see the internal rotation. So if you doubt me, you just confirm it on the table. This is down here. So so they're gonna get their internal rotation here. Their sticking point, because they're laying in hip flexion, their sticking point is just off the table, and then they're moving back into external rotation. Now, as you move somebody like this through their excursion, as you're moving them into the straight leg raise, they're also going to turn a little bit this way. So what happens is what it looks like on the table is that it's perpendicular to the table and straight up. So you're implying that, that the movement is happening in the imaginary sagittal plane. It is not. It's actually it, They're actually turning more into um, external rotation at the top. So they're passing through the internal rotation and and moving back into external rotation so um, most people call that hip abduction under the circumstance and so that's where their straight leg raise is actually going because when you restore some of the some of the adaptability so if if i capture some of the exhalation strategy without the compensatory strategy like i like i i intend to in many cases what you'll see is you'll see the loss of the straight straight leg raise and so these are not muscular adaptations, these are orientations um, of, of, the, of the skeletal position and then the, the associated muscle positions that allow those crazy straight leg raises to occur. So you have to appreciate the the starting conditions from where you're measuring and then looking at the at the the relative Position of the hip not just looking at the table and saying that straight up is 90 degrees because they're 90 degrees this way down Another tell especially if you work with gymnasts if you're going to chance to work with gymnasts. So another tell with gymnasts is If you ever watch them stick their landings. so they fall from these incredible heights when they come off like a high bar Or the or the uneven bars and when they stick their landings the squat that they land in is actually very very shallow However, they are landing with the hip really close to 90 degrees, which is where they can capture a concentric pelvic diaphragm, a high-pressure strategy to create the the upward force against the downward force of the landing. So, so again, that tells you a lot about how their pelvis is oriented and how their pelvis behaves. So, Doman, I hope I answered your question for you on that. Um, Second question comes from Josh. Um, Josh says, are there specific cues you use when coaching the side split squat when dealing with a compressed wide ISA individual. I'm guessing we shouldn't allow the need to move laterally, but just wanted to make sure, Josh, you are dead on. And there's a, there's a darn good reason for this too, okay? So we got the pelvis. I'm gonna open the pelvis up from the bottom so you can see it. So I got a wide ISA, IPA individual. So they do not have full breathing excursions. So the ISA and IPA match. Um, but I also have this lower compressive strategy. So this person is is deep into the superficial compressive strategies, and this is gonna bias that hip towards external rotation. So if I'm teaching a side split squat and I see that knee moving laterally, I'm not making the change most likely that that I'm intending, because what I'm trying to do is, try to do, mm -hmm, okay. What I'm trying to do is, is uh, allow eccentric orientation to occur in this lower posterior musculature that is holding me towards ER, so what I might have to do is actually start with a very very shallow um, step length, and so um, I'm moving laterally into the split squat, and I'm trying to actually restore a normal hinge first, and that's what's going to allow this eccentric orientation to occur uh, at the at the near the apex of the sacrum, and so this is where we would use things like. A, Like a camperini deadlift so what a camperini deadlift is a side split squat don't tell anybody right it's just really really shallow and and so you might have to start with something like that to start to recapture these positions before you start to try to increase this this excursion laterally because they may not be capable so again we want to work within the 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 limitations of the individual first some people can't do half kneeling. some people can't do a really wide wide uh side split squat or or side lunge right allow them to evolve allow them to develop and so josh um, like i said i think you're dead on so we want to keep that knee kind of pointing straight ahead we're going to move into that but respect the step length um so that you accomplish what you intended to accomplish so um have a great Friday. I got neuro coffee in hand. We got a workout today. So we're going to go kill it. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week.